Amen. All right. Well, church, if you would, just bow with me in prayer as we get ready to hear from this passage. God, we ask you to be with us this morning. We ask you to go before us, particularly those who are in a season similar to that of Naomi in our passage, those who are in deep times of suffering. Anyone here in this room that this may be true of, God, we pray that you would be at work in their heart and their life. We pray you would use this passage to give them a deep, eternal kind of reassurance uh, that, that you and your redemptive plan can be trusted even when they can't see how it will work out. Uh, God, we bring these things to you. We ask that you would do this not only today, but in the, in the coming weeks as we work through the book of Ruth. Show yourself to us in these passages. Help us to know, trust, and long for Christ all the more, we pray in his name. Amen. When we read the Bible, it can often be really easy to think, well, man, I, I wish it worked that way for me, right? Because God in, in Scripture, is, is he's so active and he's so present in ways that are just really unmistakable. Like, I, I wish God just showed up and spoke to me from a burning bush. <laughs> uh, when I'm in trouble, I, I wish God would part the sea and make it crash down on my enemies. Uh, I wish God just told me what he was thinking in this scenario and, and what he was about to do, like he does with so many people in so many passages of Scripture. In real life, it can be much harder to see and discern where God is in a particular scenario and what he is doing. It's just true. Uh, in many books of the Bible, like Genesis, for instance, Exodus, but, but even in the New Testament, the miracles of Christ, right, there is often a wide chasm between our everyday experience of God and the descriptions that we read of God in the Bible. But that is not the case with the book of Ruth. The narrator of this book, the author, never flat out says, God's about to do this. God is the one who did that. God never speaks or directly intervenes even at all. At best, it is the characters of this book who we find discussing and reflecting on God's activity, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways, and we're meant to kind of figure out, are they onto something or, or what? By and large, God's role in this book feels very ordinary, very familiar. In fact, it feels a lot like real life. We can't always see where God is and what he's doing. We have to kind of wait and watch over time to find out. I've been thinking about this illustration uh, this week, and if, if the book of Ruth were a play, I, I, I'm convinced, or at least if I was the director of the play, I would put the characters in bright colors, and they'd be able to see and talk with one another, but then God, when he would show up on the scene, would be kind of in the shadows, very indescript, uh, and maybe in all black or, or gray, and he'd be kind of moving about, causing certain things that not all of the characters can see necessarily, they kind of take stabs at it, and they're guessing, and he'll do one thing here and one thing there. By the end, we see what he's been doing all along, and the characters come to find that out as well. One scholar puts it this way, 
Edward Campbell says, It is correct to observe that God's activity in the Ruth book is very much that of the one in the shadows, the one whose manifestation is not by intervention, but by, I love this, a lightly exercised providential control. Very subtle. Very easy to miss. So ultimately, the question that lingers throughout this book is, where does God actually show up? We're meant to ask that over and over. Is this him at work? One scholar points out that God is often active in Ruth through the human relationships that are described in Ruth. He says this. He says, The book of Ruth affirms that God often affects his purposes in the world through the ordinary motivations and events of his people. So if you're looking for God and his work in the book of Ruth, you might want to pay attention first to the people, the characters, how they treat one another, and the way their relationships work out in the end. I would also add that we can see God at work in the book of Ruth through what I can only call otherwise inexplicable conveniences. <laughs> Things that just don't seem to make sense, and we don't know why it happens that way, but it goes really well. For example, for some reason, this Moabite woman, who we would expect for every practical consideration, would turn back to her God and her people given the situation. For some reason, she devotes herself to her mother-in-law, to her God, and to her people. It doesn't tell us exactly why. It's an inexplicable convenience. <laughs> then they show up after leaving for a famine. Uh, they show back up in, in, Jerusalem, or, uh, in Bethlehem, and it, it happens to be time for barley seasons. Perfect. Inexplicable convenience. Then for some reason, Ruth randomly starts working in one man's field who happens to have the legal right to actually redeem her mother-in-law and change this whole scenario. How could that possibly be inexplicable convenience? You see this, and each time we're meant to wonder, is this God? Could this be what God has been doing all the while? And yet the author never says it. Before we dive in, let's get our bearings a bit of the book of Ruth, a little bit of context. What is this book? Who's involved in it? Obviously, it's an Old Testament book. The truth is we can learn a great deal about this book by simply reading the first verse very carefully. And actually, I would say it's very important that we read and consider the first verse very carefully to make sense of the book. The first thing we see is that this story took place in the days when the judges Ruled. If I could just point us back to our series in Abraham, we learned then the entire story of the Old Testament is about God raising up from this one man an entire nation, the nation of Israel, right? Well, this story took place well into the nation's history. This story took place after the nation was delivered from uh, uh, slavery in Egypt, after they wandered through the promised land, after they'd even conquered the promised land. It was, they were sort of setting up their first camp, if you would, in the land that God promised to Abraham. It happened after all of that, and yet before the nation was really established and began to appoint kings, sort of in this really early stage of its taking over the promised land. And this season of its history was a particularly dark time in Israel's history. There's an entire book devoted to it in the Old Testament. It's the one right before Ruth. It's called Judges, and it is a grisly read. I have to prepare you um, but if you want to get a bit of context of what was going on in the nation of Israel at this point in time when this story happened, go home and read the book of Judges. And there is a refrain that you'll find throughout that book, which is that the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes and evil in the sight of the Lord. This time in which the judges ruled was particularly known for a time of chaos 
and a time of disorder in the nation. Here's why this matters. It's because on one hand, what we're about to read is the story of one family. That's true. Most of what we read is, is just about that one family. On the other hand, this book was written to and for an entire nation. And, and that needs to change and shape the way we understand the purpose of the book of Ruth and what the author's trying to do. Ultimately, this is the story of how God used one ordinary and nearly extinct family line to lead Israel out of this dark period of time when the judges ruled, and it's the story of him using, of all people, a Moabite widow to do this. It's not all we see in verse 1. In the, in, if you look back again, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, I want you to remember a few things again from another series we did early in Genesis, chapters 1 to 11. In Genesis 1, God creates the man and the woman. woman gives him ground to work, the garden. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. Then by chapter 3, because of their sin, we learn that the ground now produces thorns and thistles. So this project is going to be harder than it had to be as a result of our sin. In other words, things like famines are now possible. The ground he works is it's not just going to spring up. Then in Genesis 12, right after God promises to use Abraham and his descendants to redeem this whole equation, the very next thing we read in that series, if you remember, is that there was a famine in the land. Same land, long time before. There's a famine in the land, and Abraham went to sojourn in Egypt. And, and so we, we know this was not good news. At the time, this was a result of him living by sight rather than faith. He was essentially walking away from the promise that God had just made him to establish he and his descendants there in the promised land. So here's the point. Famines in the Old Testament are not just natural disasters. They are a direct consequence of human sin and rebellion. And leaving God's people and God's land during a famine is not a good thing. <laughs> we have already learned this in the Bible at this point. We should see this family as a family who is wandering away from God and his people in disobedience. And they left Israel in particular to sojourn with the Moabites. Back to our Abraham series a little bit, shifting gears here. But if you don't know who the Moabites are, they are descended from Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham who went to go uh, get some land in a beautiful green suburb called <coughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, that did not go well. Uh, it, it, took, uh, it was a, a, an example of him living by sight and not by faith. He parted ways with Abraham, and then when God came to judge Lot and his family, uh, uh, or sorry, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, he tells them to flee, and rather than fleeing, this is kind of important, Lot's wife turns back, and remember what happens? She turns to a pillar of salt. She, she neglects to do what God says. She kind of hesitates, and oh, I really liked that, and she turns to a pillar of salt. So just to be clear, that's who Elimelech and his family ran to when there was no food in Israel. So to get a picture of this family, Elimelech is the husband. Naomi, a main character, is the wife. They have two sons, Malon and Ch uh, Chilion. Uh, they have left for 10 years. They, they live in Moab, and in that time, the two sons married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But in this 10 years, 
rather than finding respite in a stockpile of food in Moab, tragedy strikes. And we read in short order in the first few verses, all the men in this family have died. Now, these societies we're reading about in the Old Testament are patriarchal societies, which actually means something in a real practical and and legal way even. It means that the family's wealth, inheritance, and estate was always tied to the men in the family. So if the women were ever widowed and, and left to be the only ones in the family, essentially they had no right to all of the estate that they just had through and Uh, in connection to their husbands. So for that reason, women who were often widowed in this way often wound up poor and destitute, which is why Naomi decides that it's time to go back to Israel where she might be able to find some respite. She even learns, it says, she hears of people saying that the Lord had visited the people and given them food in Israel, and she decides to go back at least on her own. So that, that should be good by way of context, just to set the table for today And what I want to do is just give us a sense of walking through this story together. But as we do, keeping in mind the idea that the goal here is to look for God in the life of this suffering family. Let's keep our eyes intently looking for God and where he is at work. The bulk of this passage, verses 7 to 17, is about uh, these three widows debating about whether or not the two younger ones, the Moabites, should go with Naomi back to Israel. And there is a repetition of a couple words that are connected in the Hebrew, but in English they're translated return and turn back. If you maybe noticed that she's talking about returning and turning back throughout the whole passage over and over. And this is interesting for a few reasons. Obviously it's interesting because they left in a famine and now uh, Naomi's going to be turning back in a way. She's almost like the, the prodigal widow, if you will, of the Old Testament, going back to God and his people. It's also interesting because of the history of the Moabites. Lot's wife turned back. Same Hebrew word, and some scholars even think that the author of Ruth is trying to call us back to that theme in a way uh, to, to remind us of what happened in Abraham's story. Chances are the original Israelite readers, for instance, may have expected Orpah and Ruth to turn back in this first chapter because in their minds they're, they're Moabites and that's just what Moabite women do. They turn back when they had an opportunity to go to God and his people. Naomi uses this word four times to persuade her daughters-in-law not to come with her. If you look at me at verse 8, she says, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. Right. So when we're in crisis, right, that makes sense. Go back to your mother's house. Verse 11, turn back, she says. Because she doesn't have any sons to be their husbands. There's just no way to connect these dots here. This doesn't make any sense. In verse 12, she says, turn back. She keeps rationalizing. I'm too old to have a husband or any kids. And even if I did have any kids, what are you going to wait for these little babies to grow up so you can marry them? So one thing is really clear throughout this entire debate between these widows. One thing is clear. It's that Naomi cannot see how her daughters-in-law would benefit from going with her back to Israel. She doesn't see how that would be a good thing. In fact, in verse 13, she says very persistently, no, daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's a little bit of a clunky translation. Basically, what's going on here is a lot of self-loathing. Naomi's basically saying, listen, leave me alone. My God hates me. You you don't want to turn back with me to his people and his land. He'll just turn his hand against you if you do, right? 
So Orpah hears this. She says, okay. Uh, she kisses Naomi, and she goes about her way back to Moab, and the Israelite readers, I think, at least, might think, I knew it. I knew she was going to do that. That's what these Moabite women do. They turn back. And in verse 15, Naomi turns to Ruth, and she says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her, puts the pressure on, back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And this is where we get to the climax of chapter 1. Ruth really puts her foot down, and she insists, no, I'm, I'm going to go back to Israel with you. And now, listen, if you've ever had a sharp disagreement with your mother-in-law, uh, you know how big of a deal this is, right? Uh, this is not easy uh, to just come down and disagree. Uh, and yet in verse 16, Ruth says very boldly, listen, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. In other words, Ruth is saying, listen, I don't care if your God's hand is against you. I still want to be with you. I still want your people to be my people. I still want him to be my God. I'm with you in this, Naomi, no matter what will come. Now again, here is one of these otherwise inexplicable conveniences. It's hard to read this, right, without wondering, why does she feel this way? Why is she feeling so strongly about this? What's going on in her? And here again, the author doesn't tell us. At best we get, she kind of tells us she wants Naomi's God to be her God and Naomi's people to be her people. We don't know why beyond that, but we get a sense that there is something spiritual taking place in Ruth's life. For some reason, unknown to us, even more so than Orpah, notice, she sees something in this opportunity to go back to Israel. She sees some kind of hope, even though it doesn't seem to make sense, as Naomi has clearly demonstrated. This is one of these inexplicable conveniences. We're meant to wonder, is God at work here? Is he doing something in Ruth? What happens next is very interesting. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so it says the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. I want you to notice Naomi does not thank Ruth. She does not celebrate this decision. Okay, wow, thank you so much. I'm really flattered. She basically just accepts it. She says no more, and then they go. It might have been a long and awkward walk even to Bethlehem. Now, as we keep reading, we are going to see Naomi's decision here to say no more. Naomi's decision to allow Ruth to come with her will turn out to be incredibly consequential. Now, without getting ahead of ourselves, Ruth will be the key to Naomi's redemption. I hope it's not a spoiler alert. Her name is the title of the book. Um, but as we see this plan taking shape, we're meant to recall this. We're meant to look back and think back on chapter one and say, whoa, wait a minute. Do you remember, Naomi didn't even want her to come in the first place. What would have happened if she didn't? In other words, again, at first we can see Naomi could not see why it would be necessary or helpful to Ruth, for Ruth to come. And yet by the end of this book, we will all be rejoicing that she did. We have just one more scene Naomi and Ruth arrive there together. 
in Bethlehem. Picture them showing up to the city gates. People came and went all the time through these city gates. There's no reason for anyone to cause a stir. They easily could have slipped in unnoticed, but instead they were warmly received as soon as they get back to Bethlehem. It says the whole town was stirred because of them. There's a kind of warmth even and sweetness of this reception, but Naomi didn't see it that way. If you look with me at verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. In fact, her name Naomi means sweet or pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now again, I think Naomi's suffering and her response is very understandable, okay? All the men in her life are dead. She faces very few prospects. Many terrible things have happened. But we're also supposed to notice she's not quite seeing the scenario very clearly. In a few ways, actually. First, she attributes all of her suffering to the Lord, seemingly without much reflection on her own disobedience and wandering from God and his people in the first place. For example, she recalls leaving and she says, I went away full. Irony, of course, is we just learned they actually left because of a famine. So the truth is, not only was she not necessarily full when she left, they left because they were terrified that they might starve even. The point is, as Naomi reflects back on the circumstance that led her to Moab, she's not quite remembering it or seeing it very clearly. She has some rose-colored glasses on. Not to mention the most obvious irony, which I think is really, in a, there, they, I think there's a sense of comedy to it maybe even, which is that Ruth is standing there with her as she says all of this. So, so picture Naomi, hey everybody, I'm back, I'm empty. I have nothing. God has dealt bitterly with me. And then picture Ruth just standing next to her like, hey, hey guys. <laughs> yes, I am the Moabite daughter-in-law. Yes, and you know, I, I just selflessly devoted myself to this woman and her God and her people for no good reason other than faith. But I guess, I guess she's empty. I guess she's empty. Uh, Naomi didn't see it that way. Also, of course, the change of her name from sweet or pleasant to bitter. Uh, one scholar, uh, Robert Hubbard, puts it this way. In Israel, names were not just labels of individuality, but descriptions of inner character, which in turn were presumed to influence the person's conduct. There's, there's something spiritual in a name uh, in, in Israel. And the point is that Naomi could not see how God was doing anything in her life other than treating her bitterly, and she could not see any appropriate response to that other than responding with bitterness herself. So again, this is a really kind of a raw take on her suffering, which I think is in a way refreshing for us. We can see that we can relate to that, and yet it's also kind of an accusation, if you will, as if God has almost violated her namesake. So I think you can see Naomi's a complicated figure in chapter one of Ruth. I think it will help for us just to consider how should we think about Naomi here. And on one hand, I think we should be able to understand and certainly empathize with her agony, right? If, if any one of us was experiencing the kind of pain and suffering that she went through, I think we'd all be in the exact same place as her. We've probably been there before. Maybe you're there now. In many ways, this is a beautiful, very candid portrait of what the human experience of suffering is just like. It is. 
On the other hand, this is written in such a way that as the reader, I think we're meant to learn something as we watch Naomi responding here. Because as the reader, again, we can see certain details lining up according to God's good and sovereign plan. Uh, We can see that God may be about to get ready here to redeem her somehow. There's food in Israel she left as a result of a famine. Ruth wants to come back with her. We don't know exactly why yet, but the point is Naomi doesn't see any of this. She's understandably distraught. All of us, I think, would be distraught, but we can see her distress is keeping her from seeing what God is doing. And really, it's keeping her from seeing hardly anything very clearly. Hey, uh, Naomi, do you remember when you left God and his people to go find food in Moab? Oh, yeah, I was full back then. Hey, uh, both your daughters-in-law really want to stick with you and turn back with you. Why would they? That's foolish. They should go back to their gods. Okay, but but listen, Ruth isn't budging. I mean, she's going to stay with you, and God seems to be doing some really great things in her life. That's fine, whatever, she can come, but I'm empty. Hey, I know you left to avoid a famine, but look, God has visited his people. He's brought a harvest just in time for you to return. Uh, His hand is against me. Call me bitter. See, because we are not in Naomi's place, we can see these things a bit, a bit more clearly, and I think we're meant to learn something in this, not just about ourselves and not even just about suffering. We're meant to learn something here about God. Namely, the claim of our passage today is that we can't always see or understand how God will redeem our life. We can't always see or understand it. This is a really important part of understanding the human experience. And I think the question is, uh, when we can't see how God will redeem us, when all we can see is our suffering, how will this impact our posture towards God and others? No matter who we are, it's tempting for us to bristle at God when we experience pain and suffering. In some ways, that's not only unavoidable, I I think it's necessary even and appropriate to the human experience. And one thing we do see here is that God can handle our despair God can handle our complaints. Uh, He even cares deeply enough that he wants to hear our despair and our complaints. And by the end of this story, we'll be all the more certain of that when we see just how sweet Naomi's redemption truly is. And yet as Christians, even more so than Ruth or Naomi, and in many ways we'll see because of Ruth and Naomi, we have reason to hope because we can see something that they never got to see in their lifetimes. See, for Ruth and Naomi, their story took place kind of in the middle of Israel's redemptive story. We know the climax of Israel's redemptive story. We know that Naomi's God will come himself to suffer in our place and to redeem us once and for all. And in light of that incredible news, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 4. He says, For we do not have a high priest. This is just a mediator for us in God. We do not have a mediator who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Church, Jesus knows what it is to face bitterness and suffering and not see a way forward in this earthly life. He knows that. For that reason, the author of Hebrews encourages us. 
continues on. He says, let us then with confidence draw near. With Ruth Run in mind, let us turn back, if you would. Let us return to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, we don't have to wonder if God's hand is just against us. Uh, We don't have to wonder if he's somewhere just trying to make our lives miserable for some reason we'll never know or understand at all. Christ has come so that when we can't see anything but our bitterness and our suffering, we can look to him. We can look to this God-man who suffered and died to redeem us so that when we don't know how God will redeem the specific details of our lives, we can at least be very sure we have an eternal resurrected life to look forward to with him. That's what we see in our passage. And to apply this, what I want to do now is just consider three things to remember when God deals bitterly with us. Three things to remember when we're in a season of suffering. The first one is this. It's really hard to reconcile, uh, sorry, no. It's, it's really hard to see God clearly when we suffer, I should say. It's hard to see God clearly when we suffer. Uh, it, it can be really hard to reconcile these two things. On one hand, we have a good, sovereign God in control of all things. On the other hand, I don't know, maybe my life is going terribly right now. Uh, what are we supposed to do with that, Right? Uh, it's, it's really easy uh, to, to connect a few dots here and come away with the conclusion, he must hate me. He must despise me. And when we do connect these dots, like Naomi, uh, it can be uh, tempting to, to, to resort to self-loathing. God just hates me. He's going to smite anybody who comes with me. You better keep your distance. It can also make us ungrateful. I'm empty even though I have this incredibly special person who God's put in my life, can also make us short-sighted. Look, I have no sons. I'm too old to have kids. Uh, As if we know every possible solution to our suffering, and there are no other ways that God can work. Again, these responses are all understandable. We should expect to kind of feel these instincts often to some degree when we suffer. But when we do, it's very helpful to have in our minds and our hearts this conviction Listen, maybe it's hard for me to trust God right now because it's just really hard to see him clearly when I'm going through this kind of pain and suffering. Uh, I want you to imagine you wake up in the middle of the night and it's pitch black. All of the power is out in your entire neighborhood. You can't really hardly see a thing. Uh, Is that going to change the way you get up and walk out of bed at all? Are you going to just spring up out of bed and just confidently walk around your house as if the lights are on? Well, you're not. Right? Why? Because you know you can't quite see very clearly. And that needs to change the way you go about life in this house. Same is true here in suffering. It helps to sort of embrace the limitations of what we can see in our suffering and adjust accordingly. Just recognize it's really hard for me to see clearly right now. That changes so much. I, I think it's also meant to change how we walk with people, by the way, who are in suffering. Uh, what people don't need in suffering is for you to say, hey, listen, I got these night vision goggles, and trust me, you can't see very clearly right now. Don't do that. Right? That's not actually going to help them <laughs> in their suffering because they still can't see, even though you may be able to see a bit more clearly. And so instead of 
confidently jumping up and walking around trying to make things happen instead of just telling our friends what needs to be done. And if they could see better, what we need to do instead is to encourage and help them to be still in the darkness. Uh, let, your, let your eyes adjust, if you will, to the lack of light a bit that maybe you could see a bit more clearly and ultimately hold out hope that this God can redeem your life even if you can't see how he will. It's one of the most important things this book is meant to reassure us of. Second thing to remember is that we can always return to God and his people. We can always return to God and his people. Remember, this is a book for the nation of Israel, the entire nation. It's the surprising story of God delivering Israel out of a dark period in its history through this one battered family who turns back to him and his people. Praise God, these women do. At least for Naomi, it's a turning back, right? For Ruth, it's a turning to God and his people for the very first time. For all the things Naomi missed, she did see this. She turned back to God and his people. Now, I have to imagine some of you may be in a dark season of suffering and, and, and bitterness. And maybe in this season, you're even reflecting quite a bit on your relationship with God and his people. Maybe you're like Naomi. You've been in Israel before. You've, you've been around God and his people. You remember what it was like back then, and you got burnt very badly. Maybe you're thinking here, listen, I, I've tried loving other Christians I've tried committing to them and walking with them. And then a famine came, and I had to run for my life and go find food wherever I could. So listen, I'd love to come to your membership class next Saturday, for example, but, but I'm just not there. I'm not ready for that. I do think it's important for us to see, and I, and I want to say it gently because I think the book says it gently, that, but God is committed to a people. He's not just committed to us individually. He's committed to us as part of a greater whole that he's redeeming. I do think one takeaway we see here in the book is basically don't run from God and his people. Even when there's a famine, don't run. It is not going to go better for you in Moab. That's one takeaway for us today. Maybe you're in the process, like Ruth, of learning that takeaway. You're along the journey. You're starting to see it more clearly, but you're in process. That's great. One other great thing we see here in an encouragement is that our God invites us back. He invites us back to himself. He invites us back to his people, and he invites us back with good company just in time for harvest. And so right now, I will say, you, you may not see the goodness of turning back to God and his people. I understand that. But in this book, we will see if we wait, we slow ourselves down, and we watch God work over time, I'm confident you will. Maybe, though, uh, you are more like Ruth. You've never been a citizen of Israel. This whole worshiping God thing is very new, but you're sort of curious about it. And yet you might have some lingering apprehensions. Maybe this Christianity thing, uh, you assume, is not for people like you. Maybe you are a woman like Ruth, and your perception is that the church and the Christian life is just dominated by men, and you don't know exactly where your place is in that community. Uh, maybe you are part of what you take to be the wrong ethnic group or economic group. Maybe you wonder if you have enough money, if you fit into the right culture, if you've shared the right experiences or have the same cultural 
instincts. I want you to see here in the book of Ruth these next four weeks, this people that God is redeeming is for you. This tension you might feel about whether or not you fit in, it's all part of God's great plan of redemption. In fact, we're going to see it's outsiders like Ruth who play an essential role in this plan of redemption. And we've seen for the last year throughout all of our preaching, this whole story is about God using this one chosen nation to redeem all nations into a new spiritual people. He unites us in his son, which is what we saw in Galatians. So let's be the kind of church also that invites all people to turn to God and his people with us. Not measuring them up. Are they a good fit in this way or that way? But going to them and meeting them with the hope of Christ and letting God work these things out. The truth is we may not know what God is doing in our suffering, but we can be sure he is drawing us nearer to himself and he wants us to experience that nearness through our nearness to his people and his promises. So we can always turn back to God and his people. It's helpful to remember that when it's dark. Some things in your house, you know exactly where they are. You could blindfold me anywhere in my house. I'm getting to that fridge. I will tell you that. It helps to just know where some things are. This is one of them. When we experience suffering, we can always turn back to God and his people. And finally, third thing we, we can remember is that we may not be as empty as we feel. We may not be as empty as we feel. Often when we only look to our immediate circumstance, it can be overwhelming how few options we seem to have and what little hope there seems to be. More than that, uh, it, it also helps to realize uh, that in, in the darkness of our suffering, it's just tempting to kind of assume that there are threats everywhere and that there is no hope anywhere. This is a tendency we have in the darkness. Uh, again, you can kind of picture walking around like, this is how, what you do. You think something's going to smash you in the face, it seems. You don't know what. If you walked that way in the light, people would think you've lost your mind because it's evident. There's, there's no threat there. Uh, and so we're tempted to think maybe it's worse. There are real threats. We see that real threats are there for Naomi, but also the darkness has a tendency to speak to us in that way and to taunt us and to tempt us to assume we're more empty than we are. And so maybe you're still estranged from a family member. And you don't see how they could ever, this could ever improve. Uh, maybe there are patterns of sin in your marriage, uh, and you don't see how those would ever get better. You don't see a path forward. Uh, maybe you long for a specific kind of approval from a specific person or group of people, and you just don't really see how you could ever actually get it. And the longer this persists, the more empty you start to feel, as if there's just no hope. Listen, if we just assume that we're seeing clearly, we are, and this is just the reality in our life, that's it, well then sure, it's going to be pretty grim pretty quick. And the truth is, when we can't see any alternatives or any hope of improvement, it's very easy to go there. I think we all understand this, but this book is going to give us a different kind of perspective. By the end of this book, we're going to see, maybe God has been in all that bitterness and suffering with me. Maybe he's doing something different, far greater than I even thought or imagined. Uh, maybe we'll come out of our suffering with something we desperately needed, like a Moabite daughter-in-law, but never would have had if we lived that pain-free life we always fantasize about. And maybe 
the effects of all these things will turn out to be glorious, not just in your life, but in the lives of those around you, and maybe even for many, many people beyond that. By the end of this book, we will know that as hard as it is for her to see it here in chapter one, Naomi was anything but empty when she arrived in Bethlehem that day. She arrived with the hope of the nation. For now, I think the takeaway is this, is that when we suffer, rather than too quickly coming to the conclusion we're just empty, it's probably wise to slow down, to look a bit closer, and to ask, has God brought any other loving people into my life to walk and suffer with me? Is he doing something powerful in their life that may help and impact mine? Has he provided for me in other specific ways that used to once cause great suffering in my past? And with all these in mind, could it be that he is in the process of filling you up, even now when you feel nothing but empty? Church, if if you're in a dark place of suffering, if you're struggling to see anything but bitterness in your life, I want to invite you on this journey with us over these next three weeks. I want to invite you to discover a kind of heavenly reassurance that no matter how hard it is to see a way forward now, in the end, for those of us who are in Christ, we can be certain we have a surprisingly sweet redemption to look forward to. And it is as sure as ever because it depends entirely on the God of Naomi and Ruth.